welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to another edition of Medically Speaking. So I hope everyone is doing well out there. I know I'm reshifting here. I've been sitting here with our guest speaker tonight and we've been talking a bit. So now I got to focus because now we're live. So we really have to focus on our topic. We um, it is May. So we thought it'd be really important to end our month with a really important topic. And those of you that know me really well know that this topic to me is really hits home because of my husband. And we are talking about stroke. So May is uh, National Stroke Awareness Month. And I'm very honored to have with me in studio tonight a neurologist from Waterbury Neurology, Dr. Puya Fatahi. How's that? Very good. Pretty good, yes. right? So um, Dr. Fatahi is with Waterbury Neurology here in the greater Waterbury area, right? You guys are on Streets Turnpike. Correct. 1625, I believe, That's 1625. right? Streets Correct. Turnpike, a That's beautiful right. office. Uh, thank you. And you've been, you're newer to our area, though. You've only been here, what, like three years, you were telling yes, me? Yes, absolutely. I uh, joined the group um, around September of 2013. So we're coming up to a little bit over three and a half years. And for us, it's really an honor because you are our new section chief at St. Mary's for, for, for a neurology. It's an honor. And you're also part of our new committee, our new physician That's engagement right. committee. That's I right. get, once I latch on to you, Dr. Ford, I'm going to have you do everything with us. So it's, it's my pleasure. It's so great to have you. I wanted to first, before we get into stroke, and I know you and I talked about this, I want to talk a little bit about neurology and what the field is, because right. I think it's important for people to know that. But before we do that, where do you hail from? So where do you, how, do you, how did you get to Waterbury? Yes, yeah, so I have uh, an interesting story. At least I think it's interesting, <laughs> you know, but I was actually born in Oregon, in Corvallis, Oregon, out of all places. Oregon? That's right. You don't That's look right. like a guy born from Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an elaborate country, I would have thought right. you would have said That's to me. That's right. But um, I was about a year and a half old when we moved to Italy. And I actually was in uh, Umbria, Perugia and Umbria. I was there until I was about 10 years old. My parents are Persian. My father is a physician. So we went back to Persia so he can essentially work. And I was there until essentially I uh, finished my high school. Then I did optometry. And then I decided to come back to the United States. So I came back. I spent uh, some time in Ohio. I did my uh, biomedical engineering degree there. And I did uh, medical school there as well. I did my... uh, um, internal medicine at University of Cincinnati, one of the um, um, smaller hospital, Jewish hospital connected to them. And then, of course, I came here in 2009, did my neurology residency at Yale New Haven Hospital. Then I did uh, extra training. I wanted more punishment. So <laughs> I went for a fellowship and I did neuroimmunology and neurophysiology at Yale New Haven. And I did a few months at Mass Einier in Harvard for neuro-ophthalmology. Then my wife says it's time to come back. So I came back to Connecticut and I start working and I've been here ever since. It's interesting to me because a lot of the physicians in the greater Waterbury community that I have on the radio with me, those that are either part of our Franklin Medical Group or those that are community physicians, a lot of you have done your training at Yale. And we see so many of our our patients in the community going to Yale. But you really don't have to because the majority of our physicians up here are (laughs) Yale trained. So I I think we've kind of taken from them. Correct, and and I think that's a good thing. Absolutely, it's a good thing that you know we all didn't stay down in New Haven, and you know I'm very grateful for what I learned down at Yale, both for my residency and both fellowships, and I'm very grateful that I'm able to bring that knowledge back here, and I'm still involved, obviously, um, down at Yale for both the internal medicine program at Waterbury and St. Mary's, and also for neurology program right. there. So we try to stay up to date and try to use that to the benefit of our patients and to improve the quality of care as much as we can. Now, the field of neurology, I think it's a confusing field for because it covers a lot of things. That's right. But I think it's sometimes confused with neurosurgery and Correct. neurology is medical. But what is neurology? So neurology essentially is a, a, um, a science of, um, of of the brain and the nervous system. And mm-hmm. as a neurologist, we are treating the brain and the spinal cord and nerves and muscle, essentially, if we want to be complete. And we take care of the disorders that they have. We do everything short of surgery. Mm-hmm. For that, we refer them to our colleagues, uh, neurosurgery, for surgeries such as orthopedics, I'm sorry, such as uh, spinal cord surgery mm-hmm. or brain surgery. 
which is scary. That's right. <laughs> which is a really, really scary thing. So the field of neurology, what type, ty- other than stroke, which we're going to talk about tonight, what other types of disease processes does it look at as so, an example? So if we make it a, a broad category, you know, stroke is definitely a part of that. Then we have uh, autoimmune disorders and demyelinating disorders like multiple sclerosis that attack that. Uh, we do take care of some of the patients with brain tumor, or, um, and we do take care of patients that have other conditions such as seizures, headaches. Uh, we take care of patients that they have muscular conditions. So, uh, there's a field of called neuromuscular disorder, and those are disorders such as myasthenia gravis and even ALS. Uh, um, so we do cover a variety of, of areas. The nice thing about our field, unlike most of the fields, even though we subspecialize, for example, I've done three subspecialty. My partners, each one, have done one to three also. At the end of the day, we would like to, we like to take care of all the neurological patients. So we are, our passion is general neurology, but we have the ability not only to treat the, the conditions that we have specialized, but other conditions as well. And I think that speaks to um, you know our our programs that we went through for our residency that they did a very nice job covering all all the different mm-hmm. categories and different diseases and makes us comfortable being able to handle that. So, as chair of the as section chief of neurology, what do you what do you want to see as in, what happens? Like, what are some of your goals for this community in particular? Absolutely. So, number one, we want to be able to provide uh, the best quality possible. Mm-hmm. So, if uh, I wanted to make it, so if you go to Yale or to Hartford Hospital or down to our St. Mary's Hospital, that you should experience and get the exact same care as you would get at a place like Yale. Right. So that's number one goal. And that includes stroke and stroke protocol, and we'll talk about that, obviously, in the near future. Um, Also, the experience of having the proper diagnostic procedures done, proper treatment and also treatment planning of you know so our goal should not be just to see the patient in the hospital but also have a follow-up treatment to be done as an outpatient that's the number one goal and obviously our goal is to increase collaboration between fields of neurology cardiology physical therapy and also develop protocols to make things streamlined so that patients will spend less time in the hospital and more time recovering from their condition and they do better at home that's right we all do better at home absolutely but you don't always have that person watching over you which is the benefit of being in the hospital but Unfortunately, insurances don't pay for that anymore. Correct. But I want the patients to feel like they're not alone. Right. So if there's always a problem, they know who to call. They know who to to call and what the process is. That's right. It's definitely, I think, a field of medicine that is misunderstood. Definitely, because I don't think that unless you're referred to a neurologist, and I think people are always thinking, am I going to have surgery? Does this mean surgery? But as you said, it is medical, it is non-surgical, but you treat a lot of things that are sometimes complemented where you would need to refer to a neurosurgeon. Correct. And, you know... um, also among the medical students, this is a field that people try to sh- stay away from because they're scared. Really? How come? <laughs> yes, because of, you know, because brain, it's... Uh, complicated. It's very complicated. Especially a female brain, I think. <laughs> On Johnny. <laughs> uh, but also at the same time, is very fascinating. So, mm. you know, um, it, it can be daunting uh, to... Uh, to some of the students and even some of our colleagues that are non-neurologists. But at the end of the day, it's an excellent field. And it's, you know, it gives me joy every day that I come to work. That's so great. Thank you. Thank you for straightening that out. I think for the audience, I think it's really important to understand that, to to set it as the, the template for us as we move forward to talk about stroke. And again, if anybody has any questions and you'd like to call in 203-757-1320, you're more than welcome. But we will also have this show on iTunes by early next week, and you can also access from our web access it from our website. I have to say those things, Johnny, or I'll forget. So I have to remember to do it. So 203-757-1320. So because it's Stroke Awareness Month, I think what I'd like to start with, I mean, and we'll move on to treatment. We can move on to our accreditation because I think that's important. 
But I want to talk about what stroke is. So what is stroke? What is, what is it actually? Correct. So stroke, um, if you look at a broad category, essentially is absence of blood flow to a certain region of the brain. Now this could be because of a clot. And uh, 80% of the time that's the case and there's a clot and the blood doesn't flow to a certain region of the brain and the brain can survive only uh, without oxygen for only four minutes. After that, you lose that brain area. And 20% of the cases, it's because of a bleeding. So one of the blood vessels can rupture and can cause bleeding in that certain area of the brain. And that can also, unfortunately, uh, essentially damage a certain part of the brain. It's so scary. It is. It is so scary. What do you see more in your practice? So we see more of the ischemic or the dry kind of stroke. So the clot. Um, that's right, the clot. The clot. Even though it is scary, but nowadays we have tools that we mm. can help um, minimize the damage from these strokes as long as the patients are brought into the hospital within a certain time frame. Right, quickly. That's right, quickly, specifically within four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, we can now do things to decrease the chance of future strokes from happening to these patients. There's been so much out there on the education of what someone looks for. That's right. In a stroke. But it's varied. I would think. And I know the common acronym is FAST. Correct. So maybe you want to talk about that. Absolutely. So this acronym FAST, F-A-S-T, uh, was actually coined in England back in, in the 80s. And what it's talking about is, you know, your four things that to consider. So F um, means look at the face, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a facial droop? A is arm weakness. Mm. S is speech. Is there any change in the speech? And T is time to call 911. Mm. And uh, sometimes uh, the family or even the patient is not sure if this is a stroke or not. I always tell them, look, the worst case scenario, you're going to have a ride in the ambulance and come to the ER and spend right. half, you know, few few hours, depending on what time you arrive. But the best case scenario is that if this is a true stroke, we are able to take care of it right away. We can treat it. That's correct. So... Someone calls the ambulance, they get the patient to the hospital, and we talk about protocols that we've set into place at St. Mary's Hospital, because back in June, I want to make sure I'm, I'm correct in my timing, June in 2016, St. Mary's was awarded the advanced certification as a primary stroke center by the Joint Commission, and this was based on a review of compliance with national standards, clinical guidelines, and outcomes of care. So what are some of those protocols that have to be adhered to, to be a stroke center? Correct. So one of them is um, how fast the patient is being seen right away by the ER attendings, right. how fast the CAT scan is done, and how fast a neurologist, such as myself, are seeing that patient. And also, we would like to give the medication, which is called TPA, mm -hmm. which does open the clot. It's a bust. It's a, it's a clot busting medication and it does help restore blood flow and we are trying to push that medication less than one hour and now the move is to do it within 45 minutes from the patient uh, the, from the time that the patient arrives to the ER so what we do as a hospital is we I know what happens in at St. Mary's and I hear it quite often we hear stroke alert correct so a lot of What's happening is is the patient's family is now calling for the ambulance, and then the ambulance company notifies us that they have a potential stroke, which then brings our team together. Who is on that team when the patient gets to the Correct. emergency room? So I'm going to walk you through a typical stroke That'd alert. That'd be perfect. That's right. So when the EMS arrive to the scene and they see the patient on, on, on their way to the hospital, they do call the ER and, and alert us that they have, a, for example, 60-year-old uh, male with right side of weakness, and they're worried that this could be a stroke. Mm. So the stroke uh, alert gets activated. As soon as the patient comes to the ER, the ER attending and the nurse Nurses, obviously, they both examine the patient and um, they do a very brief, quick survey and see what's going on, get the, the absolute required data, minimum data that we need, and they will send the patient right away for a CAT scan. The reason for a CAT scan is you want to make sure that there's no bleeding, mm -hmm. number one, and you want to make sure there's no big, massive tumor that may be causing some of the symptoms. While the patient's in the CAT scan, they notify us neurologists and, you know, we get 
calls right directly in our cell phone to decrease any uh, time wasted to call the service or the office. And then we briefly talk about the patient. And right now we're fortunate that St. Mary's actually uh, is, uh, has implemented a telestroke protocol, which is great because if I'm at a different hospital and or I'm, let's say, on my way or I'm in the clinic or home anywhere, I can just open my iPad and I can log in and I can use a um, essentially a telestroke device or we call it a robot uh, to be able to examine the patient from the distance. Okay, wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> he said robot. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I mean, I know what it is. That's right. But it's scary as a patient. That's so right. what is the robot? So that's why I actually don't like it to call a robot, <laughs> you know, but they call it a robot. All it is is just a, 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 a computer on a stick, you know, let's put it this way. And it's kind of like a selfie stick with a camera, right? right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's just a monitor that, that, that we're able to, um, to manipulate and we're able to move to the left, to the right. So you're able to do that from your from, iPad. That's right, from so, the iPad. So you can... And log into this robot Correct. or this, I'm going to call it selfie camera. That's right. And it then rotates around the patient or examines Correct. the patient. You can move it around. And I can actually zoom in all the way into the patient's uh, eyes and I can take a look and see, you know, yeah, me. are the pupils equal size? You know, is there any facial asymmetry? It has a very good camera. It's actually better than my, you know, camera. Wow. That I take pictures from my baby. So, so I'm able to use that and I'm able to examine the patient. And obviously we rely heavily on the nurses. So because as soon as the patient is back from the CAT scan, the nurse usually accompanies the patient on route and coming back, and they're able to give us even more um, history of how is the patient evolving, getting better, worse in the past few minutes. And when we log in, use this device, the nurses are right by the side of the patient, and they're help them, they help us um, <coughs> with the examination. And what we usually look for on examination is how's the patient looking, number one. Number two, is the patient able to understand what we're talking about and there's the patient able to follow commands do they know where they are and then we assess for strength how's the strength and then we assess to see if there's any visual problem did they have a vision loss and also do can they feel when when the nurses touch the arms and legs can they feel that and that virtually is, is the same quality as i would if i were standing right there but you're not wasting time that's correct and that's, that's correct. the thing that's you're the not key. wasting time every minute now when you when they when the patient gets there, I mean, I, I see what we have here is the goal for door to CAT scan is 25 minutes. The average time for us is 18. So we're beating. That's right. We're beating that. But when the patient gets there, do they send the patient right to CAT scan? Then you examine them. So while they're, that's being read, is that a uh, Correct. common? That's right. That, that's all right. So flow. Um, on 99.99% of the time before I examine the patients are in the CAT scan. The only time that I can examine the patient before goes to CAT scan, if I was standing physically, in the ER yeah. physically for something else that I was there. Right. But even that, I would not delay the CAT scan. I want the CAT scan first because that will help us guide what we're going to do next. And uh, usually by doing the CAT scan first and having us do the teleneurology or even in-person examination, we're able to arrive to a decision as what we're going to do with, with, with the, with the uh, treatment plan. And why CAT scan versus MRI? So CAT scan is much faster. You can get a good quality CAT scan within less than five minutes. Obviously, the CAT scan is not going to show you a stroke right away. Mm. But again, we're not doing that for that reason. We're making sure that there's no bleeding. And we're making sure that there's no big tumor that may be causing these symptoms. And if we don't see that, we can say that this is safe for us to push the medication. What are you looking for in a CAT scan which would demonstrate a bleed? Well, what we see with the bleed is essentially changing color. Uh. So the brain, you know, the brain parenchyma has a grayish type of color, but blood is pretty bright. It's white. You will not miss it. Right. And, you could see it on a scan. Looking. Correct. You could see it on a scan. So when the patient gets a CAT scan, now you're examining the patient versus the telestroke, which I think is really neat. That's right. Uh, yeah. and, and do we have this at both hospitals? Is this something that we have? So right now we have at St. Mary's. We do okay. not have that at Waterbury. Um, we're hoping that they will be able to get that soon. That would be awesome. It's so important to have 
that continuity exactly. for patients in the same care. So now, when you're able to see the patient and you're able to make a determination, before you do anything, you have to look at that CAT scan. That's correct. Right? That's so are right. you able to see those images from where you are? That's right. We are able to even use the iPad again, or most of the time by then, if I'm home, I all I have a desktop ready to go, just right. for this kind of stuff when I'm on call. I'm cheating a little bit, because I do know that. Yes. I, <laughs> my, little, my radiology background, I do know that you have access to That's right. So we look at that ourselves. We do, you know, how we're relying on our radiology colleagues, and they're very good about reading the images right away. They can even give us a verbal, yes, this is good, or no, there's bleed right away. But at the end of the day, uh, the the responsibility is on us as neurologists to make sure that we checked all those things, and we do. It's really important. You know, you mentioned the radiologists, but it's so important because everybody is such an integral part of the team, and they, too, need to be on board with whatever the protocol That's is. Right. I know we're doing another process and um, I brought a physician down today to meet with our radiology team to make sure he was able to establish the protocols for what we're going to be doing. And I think it's so important because everybody has to be that. Everybody has to be informed That's right. and part of the team. And it's good that you brought that point up because anytime that I decide to do the Medicaid and to do the TPA or even not do TPA, before I make my final decision, I actually do talk to not only the nurses that are standing there, but also the ER attending that mm-hmm. is standing there. Because sometimes in the background, they're able to get more information. While I'm examining the patient, they may be on the phone talking to the family members. Right. And if the patient is on certain medication or if they had right. history of bleeding in the past in the brain or they had recent surgery, there are certain things that, uh, that we would like to uh, not give this TPA uh, to the patient because it can make things worse for them. So they're able to tell us. So hmm. at the end of my evaluation with the patient, while I'm on the you know the, the telestroke machine or I just pick up the phone and call them, I say, look, this is what I want to do. Do you agree with that or not? So this is a, a collaborative. Um, Absolutely. And another thing that I would like to point out is if we have patients, families in that room, we do talk to them as well and say, look, this is what I think is going on. Camera? Via the same camera? Wow. Which they find fascinating. And I do say, look, this is the reason that I think think we should push the TPA and this is the reason that I don't think we should not push TPA and you know they 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 understand and they understand the, the risk and benefit and you know at the end of the day again it's a collaborative effort of course if a patient comes in with a bad stroke that they can't talk they can't understand anything and there's no family member oh. then we treat the patient as if this was our family member right. what would Absolutely. you want to have them done and that's what we do now when you talk about TPA and you talk about the clot buster so what it actually does is it breaks up that clot correct right wherever it is correct and then hopefully to free up the flow that's right and you know there is a um, um, kind of I don't want to say misconception because it's not true misconception but people think that oh my gosh I give the patient the TPA the patient didn't get a whole lot better right away Mm -hmm. I always tell family this medication is yes it's intended to open the clot right away but it doesn't mean that you're going to see the benefit right away this medication was designed to minimize the affected area you know, you have a central core of the stroke, and then you have areas around that that are a risk for essentially dying off. <sighs> so this medication prevents the expansion of that area. And when you look at the data, you see that these patients that they get the medication now, three months from now, they do better. They do 30 to 40% better than the same patients who didn't get the medication. Who didn't get the TPA. Now, if they improve right away with the medication, that's icing on top of the cake. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, a quick, uh, another quick question that you were, you know, you alluded to. So who, what would you see in a patient's history that would keep you other than say the patient had no bleed correct they were they had their casket and there was no bleed so it'd be a candidate for tpa but then what would be in their history that would hold you back correct from the tpa so one if they have a brain tumor right that's number one number two if they had as you said a history of of bleed uh, in the brain 
Number three, if they had a major, major surgery within the past two weeks. Uh. So if they had just a mole removed, that doesn't count. You can push TPA. If, but if they have, let's say, a heart surgery done and they, open, you know, they had a, a bypass done, oh, I, I wouldn't want to do Absolutely. the TPA. But if, let's say, the bypass huh. was six months ago or even a month ago, that's okay to do. But not in the past 14 days. A lot of um, patients in our community are on blood thinners. Correct. Routinely. Correct. What does that do to the call that you Correct. have to make? That's absolutely. So it makes it a little bit more challenging. But we have ways around it. If the patient, let's say, is on Coumadin or Warfarin, which is the most commonly prescribed medication, if their INR, which is the level of Coumadin, it's not the way it's supposed to be, and let's say the what we want it to be is between 2 to 3, but they're less than that. They're, let's say, 1.5, less than 1.7. I'm still able to give that medication, TPA. the TPA. But if the INR is 2 to 3, I cannot do that. Now, mm-hmm. some of the other medication, newer agents that are blood thinners, right. I don't have the luxury of checking the levels, but if the family member of the patient tell me that I did not take in the past two days, then I can push the TPA. Right, because it's a 36-hour hold That's for a right. lot of these medications. That's now right. the newest ones out there like the Zeralta and the, That's correct. those are a 36-hour hold, I That's believe, right. for any procedure, which is such a wonderful thing to be able to have now. That's right. Because you go off it for the 36 hours, you have whatever procedure you have, and then you start taking it taking again. It. That's right. And you don't have to have the belly shots and all the low That's Right. All those things That's that right. people have to have. So, but it still has to be out of your system Correct. for a TPA. So, if you, so holding back. What then? Then what's your choice? Then so very good, very good question. So by the way, I just want to caution one thing. So we may not be able to give that IV TPA. You know, the, the TPA by the IV if they're on those medication. But if I do a certain type of CAT scan called CT angiography, and if I can see that there is a clot sitting someplace in the brain, I can actually send that patient to our colleagues at St. Francis and they're able to go through the groin and send a little catheter up there and actually fish that clot out. Wow. And it's okay to be on that medication, the you know, the Zorelto or the Prodaxa. Right, right. So I just want to caution people to think that, you know, if they are on those clot, uh, I mean, if they're on, on those anticoagulation or yeah. blood thinners, you know, it's not the end of the world. We can do things to help them get better wow. with procedures. It's incredible. Yes. We have come to the halfway point, so I think we better take a little break. All right. We could regroup. We've gotten them a lot of information. We will be right back. <laughs>
Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. And it is May, and we are medically speaking on stroke awareness. We think it's a really important topic. We want to make sure that we get as much information out to the community as possible. And again, you know that's near and dear to me. And the more information we can get out there to educate our community on stroke, the better. And my hospital, St. Mary's Hospital, has done an incredible job stepping up in the last 10 years and really taking um, our stroke protocols to another, another level and becoming a stroke center, um, a primary stroke center by the Joint Commission. And let, we are led by an incredible team with our new department chair for Dr. Puya Fatahi. How's that? Very good. Pretty good, yes, right? Little good. Italian. A little bit Italian. A little bit right. Italian. My maiden name's Perugini, so very I pulled good. in a little bit for you. Just a little bit of that. Bellissimo. (laughs) So uh, Dr. Fatahi is a neurologist, and we just talked in the beginning of the program about neurology and its importance and what it does and how he, again, leads our team for stroke, the Stroke Center at St. Mary's. And we left off by talking about the treatment um, that happens to a patient when they're first diagnosed with our telestroke in our emergency room and our, our TPA. And one of the things that we talked about during that process was brain damage and that's such a scary scary thing i you know before i left the floors i worked in an in a ortho neuro unit and we had a lot of traumatic brain injuries and there were a lot of patients young patients that uh had brain damage and then it was amazing to me a year later a year and a half later after they went to therapy and they would come back and they wouldn't remember anything that happened to them and they wouldn't remember us but we would see them and we'd be so incredibly grateful that the family would bring them back so I, we could actually know the person that's right so brain damage is not always something that doesn't come back correct. i mean we get some back correct correct it's incredible and you know there is a new theory of something called brain plasticity mm. which more and more we as a neurologist we're starting to believe in that you know because um when you are born uh, your brain starts to form and throughout the years of being an infant and toddler your brain is making different connections different part of the brain and and each cell is learning essentially what they're supposed to do and that will be established by age 10 it's fully established mm-hmm. and uh, when we have a stroke you're losing a part of that region but if the region is not massive if it's, if it's not half of your brain essentially mm-hmm. if the area is small the cells around that area that are damaged they're actually essentially picking up the slack and they learn what they're supposed to do you know they may form new connections and the patients essentially recover from that you know and uh, it's amazing by um, how much these years by doing more and more physical therapy and speech therapy occupational Mm -hmm. therapy how much patients recover Mm -hmm. which I think right now it's a very appropriate time for me to tell the therapist thank you for what you're doing oh yeah they're incredible absolutely and that brings the patient back to essentially a normal level of function that they're able to do and you know um, we always get humbled by the patients because when we see them we see how bad and how devastating the stroke is but if the patient and the family puts the time and effort and mm. and, do, and and essentially 
uh, does the exercises and and uh, essentially help themselves recover, they do quite well. And we only well. use a certain portion of our brain, right? Correct. Is that what they say? I mean, I, you know, they, they told, you know, when my husband had a stroke, they were telling me that, you know, we only use a certain portion and they talked about these connections. Correct. And it was so hard for me, even as a nurse, to fully understand That's what right. they meant. It makes more sense to me now as you explain it, but we only use that portion. So you make these new connections, you almost train other areas to do the work for you. I would say the areas around the, the around area, the that's right. That's right. I don't expect, for example, the back of the brain to do the job of the front of the brain, right? right. It's too late for that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the areas around the stroke, um, those cells, they're able to, to, to basically learn and they're able to make new connections, somewhat new connection compared right. to what they have done before. The, it's easier, I think, to train the brain to do certain things, maybe on a level where you're relearning and correct. However, when it affects a part of your body, like your arms or your legs, that's harder. That's right. Right. That's and why right. is that? Done? That's right. It's because of the number of connections that are there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but if you if you see most of our patients that they had a, a, a you know um, a stroke, right. and they had trouble with walking or mm-hmm. they can't move their arm, they do recover. And if you notice, they recover better their walking mm-hmm. ability. They do. The arm is last. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. They told us that. Why is that? It's it's because the arm represents a larger area in the brain, and the connections are more uh, essentially fine oh, compared to because the fine walking, motor, fine motor skills, correct? Huh. And actually, what's to me more devastating is the vision. If mm-hmm. the patient loses vision on half of their visual field, the right side or the left side. They do recover a little bit, but they never go back to normal. That's right, and that's because the occipital lobe is, you know, it's a large area and has incredible connection. If you think about it, each eye is sending one million axons to the brain. Wow, one million. So that's like a, one million uh, connections to the brain. Right. So it's very difficult to recover what's lost in the brain from that area. What about speech? Speech is also very interesting because just thinking about talking involves different part of the brain. Actually, making uh, the speech involves the left front of the brain, <laughs> and it it, uh, it sends signals to different part of the muscles. You know, um, not only the brain, but also sends signals to the actual muscles to actually have you talk. Wow! And uh, that's incredible. But at the same time, is the most uh, satisfying thing for patients. They, if they had problem with speech and they recovered that. They're very happy and they're very excited to have the speech back. Speech is so important. And and I know, you know, because my husband had the stroke on the left side and affected his right side, they were so concerned about his speech. But then when they found out he was left-handed, they said, oh, he's probably going to get his speech back. Why is that? That's right. So so patients that are right-handed... They're most of the time left hand brain dominant, but patients that are left hand dominant or left handed, they can have half of the time, 50% of the time, the right, uh, I'm sorry, uh, left brain dominant still. So wow. left hand, there still could be left brain dominant, but about 20 to 40 to almost 50% of the patients that have left arm dominance, they can have right side of the brain to be the dominant and we uh, we classify dominance on the brain based on speech understanding the speech right. and also producing the speech because it was funny because that started to come back right away correct was the speech and i was surprised of course swears were the first thing <laughs> that happened and my his grandfather suffered a stroke and it around this no he was in his 50s i think when he had a stroke but he um did never got his speech back he just got a lot of swear. That's right. So back, which was funny. Th- this is interesting that you said because sometimes when I go and see patients and they have, let's say, left frontal stroke and they have difficulty with speech, mm-hmm. I go in and the family member sitting there. I, I, I ask the patient, okay, you know, this, you know, she cannot communicate or he cannot communicate. But I ask them, do you know the happy birthday song? And the patient says yes. And I say, okay, let's.
that singing together and they actually are able to sing they can that. sing that's that, right. I can't believe you just that's said that right. because he was able to sing that's right so why is that that's because the connections are made between the temporal and frontal lobe wow it's in, in, in between those regions that uh, you're able to sing and you're able to uh, bring those old songs back and they're yeah. actually able to sing them that's so the family member thinks wow. like first of all why is he doing that yeah. it's not his birthday but second they get amazed when the patient's actually able to sing that is so incredible and just to hear their voice again it makes them so happy that's right. there that's were a right. lot of patients that we saw um, during the time he was in rehab that lost their speech and it was so frustrating for families because right. the inability to communicate I think is probably one of the hardest things yes. from a stroke and you know that's what I always tell patients what makes us human as a human is our ability to communicate yeah. so both understanding speech and being able to talk you know, a lot of people, you know, they prefer not to be able to move half of the body, but they want to be able to communicate. They want to be able to. It's to so talk. important. It's very important. And the um, other the other piece I think that is so, so frustrating is sometimes in the beginning, what I've noticed, not only with my husband, but I noticed it a lot with patients on my floors, was that what we call very flat affect, very emotional, you know, had no that's emotion. Right. That's right. And that's scary. It is. But it does it come back. That's correct. And that also depends on which side of the brain, which part of the brain specifically that has involved. There are patients that they can also have a brainstem stroke, mm-hmm. so that's in the lower part of the brain that can also have this type of findings. And sometimes they actually have uh, um, uncontrollable laughing or uncontrollable crying because of lesion in certain areas. You see but that on TV, there's medications that's now. Right, that's right. But you know, that goes away. That's, it does improve with stroke. It Absolutely. does improve. I mean, I, he did do that, yeah, you know, and yeah. it did go away. That's right. You know, right. and that it, it, at times he that's would... Right. He would cry or something would hit him. That's right. That's you know, right. I mean, he's more sensitive anyway, but, you know, I noticed that. That's correct. So and it was at inappropriate times. Yes, that's correct. And that's and that's why patients, family, they they kind of get a little bit, they get bothered by that. Yeah, you, know? you can't. You just got to kind of go with it. That's right. That's you know, right. and, you know, you mentioned a really important part, the family. You must just see so many family members that are just, they just, they're lost. That's right. They don't know That's what right. to do. That's right. And, you know, as as a physician, our job is not only to treat the patient, but also to help the family. Right. Help the family cope. Help the family um, get through this. Mm. Okay. And uh, I think... Uh, you know, as uh, not only as a physician, this is our job, but also the nice thing is that we have supporting staff that yeah. they do this a lot. Nurses, yeah. absolutely. Therapists. Yeah. And uh, we just have to give them a sense of hope. You and do. I always tell them, patients, he or she will get better. Not today, right. not tomorrow, but it will take time. Weeks the, and months. And, and they're they, all different, right? That's right. Everybody's different. You know, one thing I saw that they did was they gave us a time if he doesn't get it back in a month or he doesn't get it back in two months. But I said to you earlier, I'm still noticing that's subtle right. things. That's right. So that's that's, why, that's an old wife that's tale. That's why right? I don't like to do that. Right. That's why I don't like. That's why I always tell patients, you know, you know, not a week, not a, not a day. This will take time, and time it could be months. But I tell them, if I say three months, I'm lying. I don't know. Uh, nobody knows. You right. know. Well, nobody knows. And the more the patient does again, the more they participate with therapy, the faster and the better they get. The problem with therapy is there's such a time element involved Correct. with our insurances, Correct. which make it so difficult. That's right. You know, That's so right. when a patient leaves the hospital, if they are in need of more long, prolonged therapy, you send them. Right? Correct. For therapy. So That's what's right. that process? So, you know, we always like to minimize the time that the patient stays in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Not because we don't like the patient. We love the patients. Mm-hmm. But we don't want them to get infection, number one. The longer you wait, uh, as far as the therapy and not do it, the more difficult it is. So all the study point that as soon as you figure out why you had a stroke and what can be done to decrease the chance of future right. stroke, the patient needs rehab as soon as possible. Yeah, as soon as possible. And, and, and sometimes we send the patients to a short-term rehab facility. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they actually can go home and have mm-hmm. the physical therapy to be Our done patient. at a patient. And that all depends on how severe the stroke right. is. It, I'll tell you, that was the scariest part for me. That That's was right. the scariest part. Right. You know, he was in the hospital for three weeks, and then yeah. we had 
you know, I mean, I'll say where he went at the time, you know, we, we went to Gaylord and he was there for inpatient for a long time. And then he was in a step down unit. He was That's in something right. called the Truerg House and he was there. He's going to probably kill me because I always forget the timing <laughs> on that. But I think he was there nine weeks. It's a long That's time. Right. But see how well he's doing now. It's incredible. And, you know, I talked to you earlier. I mean, he goes back every week and works with patients. And, you know, he has physical limitations. But I think the key is him going and working with patients and them seeing his, living his life. Correct. Because you're not right. going to always get everything back, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's and, right. And I think that that's such a, it's so important for people to see that. But, you know, things will have a different perspective after yeah. patients have stroke. And yeah. Sometimes I and patients tell me, Doc, all I want to do is just to be able to hold my baby. Mm-hmm. Or all I want to do is just to be able to talk, you know, communicate talk. and you know and have they won't have that frustration anymore, yeah. you know. So it all changes and it, you know, we always want people to recover hundred percent. But you know that sometimes it doesn't happen. But at the end of the day, if the patient is still able to communicate and still be able to be the fam- with the family, Absolutely. that's that's great. I mean 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I don't think this was possible. I don't think it was possible either. And, you know, what I've learned from him is you have to be your own advocate. Correct. But you have to have that attitude glass half full. That's right. You know? That's right. Right? And really put the, you may not get it all back, but what you do have, you have to work with. Correct. You know, and make make it happen. I don't let him slide. He's in charge of... Well, dinner's pretty much done right now, but he's got to make sure it's heated up. But he's in charge of dishes and garbage. Oh, wait, the patients with strokes, they're not supposed to do the dishes. Yeah, no, don't be listening out there. He's probably tuned in listening. (laughs) Another thing I I forgot to ask you, what about memory? That's a scary piece too, right? Yes. So it depends on which part of the brain is involved. Uh, You know, if you have uh, strokes that are involved in a certain area of the brain, and if you have multiple of them, that actually can lead to something called vascular dementia. So it is a form of dementia. The patients lose a little bit of memory every time that they have a stroke. Oh, that's so scary. That's right. You know, and I, the short term I've noticed was immediate. That was something that Correct. they lose right away. Correct. You know, and anything that was on a list, you know, you would have to, you couldn't say, go here, do this, do that. You would have to literally do one or two things at That's a time. Right. You know, that gets better in time. But long term, for some reason, had the easiest recall. Yes, and that's because it's stored in a separate part of the brain. Oh, you know? okay. That's the interesting part. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, you look at that and it's so frustrating. Like, I just told you that, but you're remembering <laughs> something you did in grammar school, right? And that is definitely, to me, the most frustrating thing. I, I I would sit there and I'd be like, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> For his family members, it's hard. It is very hard. You it know? It is very hard. But, you know, um, <clears throat> we always have to remember that it's harder for the patient. It is. You know? So I always tell the family member, don't get upset. Because what are you going to do, you know? And it's not like the patient is playing. This is not a selective memory problem, you know? The patient is trying to do their best. Right. Now, after the patient goes through the rehab, what part do you play? In their correct. So in the, when they come back, we usually try to see them within the next few weeks when when they come from the rehab. And one of the things is to make sure that everything that we wanted to be done is done. All the labs are back. All the all the studies are complete. And because now it's the phase of trying to prevent. I shouldn't say prevent or decrease the chance of future stroke. And here's why: prevent is a very strong word. And you know, I don't think we none of us can prevent anything, but we can decrease the chance of future stroke and and how do we do that one number one blood pressure Mm. blood pressure is the most important thing and if you're able to control the blood pressure with the help of obviously their primary care doctors or even cardiologists at times um, we can decrease the chance of future strokes we need to make sure that their cholesterol is okay Mm. we need to make sure that uh, that their blood sugar is okay Mm. if why blood sugar because blood sugar or diabetes can increase your risk of stroke Mm. so that's what we want to modify that smoking if they Mm. smoke no more they should not smoke. Even alcohol, we tell them to limit 
the amount of alcohol that they're using. I hope um, my husband didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are certain things that are out of our hands. If this is a, a genetic, for example, patients that have stroke at young age, mm. that's in their genes. I right. can't do anything, can't about, do anything that. about it. But at least other things we can modify. And some patients, we put them on baby aspirin. Believe it or not, it's actually pretty good. And on some patients, we have to go on blood thinners, depending if they have atrial fibrillation right. or not. Right, and which definitely was my husband's case with the... Uh, and But, you know, the blood thinners have done their thing. That's right. That's right. You know, so I mean, if you can identify what the problem is, that's right. To be able to have a medication that you know, but there's still that risk. That's right. That's you right. You know, but you can't live that way. No, no. You have to be, you know, you have to be aggressive and productive as much as possible. That's why sometimes we do have patients that they come back to see us and they have difficulty with their arm. Let's say if they have something called contraction. So their arm flexes, they can't move their hands, they can't move their arm, or they can't move their leg because of too much tone. Oh, tone stroke. That's right. So what we do actually in those patients, we actually give them Botox. And we're That's able right. To we relax. wanted to talk about that. Yeah, I so, forgot to bring that up. Yeah. So we can relax those muscles mm-hmm. in order for them, believe it or not, if they have, let's say, contraction of the arm, that impairs their gait so if you're able to relax the arm not only they walk better but they have a better hygiene as well how about if um someone is on the blood thinners is it um prohibited for them to get the botox no 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 because the needle that we use is extremely small and we're doing in right in the muscle and we mm-hmm. avoid territories that they do have you blood. give them that does that do. it happens the That's neurologist right. I have, does it i have a, a lot of patients in my practice that specifically we do botox for different things but specifically for contraction after stroke or and the MS. toning hurts it does it does and the patients have difficulty getting dressed they have difficulty even washing their hands i mean yeah. these are things that we take granted but right. those patients uh, some of them they actually their nails they dig into the palm and oh. causes soreness and pain absolutely so we give the botox in different part of the arm and the arm relaxes same thing for the leg and right. they walk a little bit better they don't make them stronger it doesn't make them stronger right. but it does improve the quality but of it, life but it relaxes it. and there's so many things out there now that we that different therapies and and different ways of doing things you know Correct. i know yeah, you know, we talked earlier. My husband has this device, the walk aid, which really helps That's him right. to plant that foot. That's right. Without it, it's harder for him. That's correct. You know, That's and it's correct. so having these things out there and being so, able to, you can live as normal life as possible. That's right. And that's why we tailor the treatment based on what's going on with each individual mm-hmm. patient. So, you know, I want to recap a little bit because we only have a couple of minutes left. So I want to thank you, Doc, for coming My on pleasure. tonight. And I want to make sure that we give everybody um, your website, which is Waterbury Neurology. Dot com Correct. And you guys are at 1625 um, Straits Turnpike. Let me give your number out. We can grab it. I have it right here. Mm-hmm. 203-758. I should know it by heart. I've been talking to Laura all week. 203-758-8995. And you are in Suite 307. Correct. And if they want to know more about you, they can go on your website, waterburyneurology.com. Absolutely. So, Dr. Puyafatai, thank you so much. Thank you for very much for having me here. For, for coming. That. And thank you for, for lending your expertise to our stroke program at St. Mary's. I, um, I definitely appreciate the opportunity. And it's an honor to work for St. Mary's. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. We will have this program um, on our website as well as on our medically speaking um, iTunes which will be downloaded um, and up there for you probably by next week. I'm going to give Jennifer Clement our communication specialist a little slide because we got the holiday weekend coming Mm -hmm. so let her slide and she'll put it up um, probably by the middle of next week and we have our golf thing coming too. That's right. Thank you so much for reminding me Johnny. So we do June 5th. Um, I know the girls were on here. Our chairs were on here the other day. Veronica Rinaldi and uh, Kathy McPadden from IMB and Veronica from Village Beach Farms. We have our golf tournament for women, Women for Women, which will be at the Waterbury Country Club. If you are interested, I so recommend that you join us. All the funds that we have at that golf tournament are used for breast imaging for women in the community who are not insured or underinsured. And that, too, is a really, really important piece that I've been involved in for many years. So please, if you want to know more, go on our website, stmh.org, and you can click on the St. Mary's Hospital Foundation, a page will open up and bring you right in how to get to that tournament. I will be there. We have a couple of docs driving the women around (laughs) and passing out pink champagne cocktails for all the women so thank you again for joining us robin sills from saint mary's hospital exceptional care every patient every day have a great holiday weekend